0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Dr. Sue's Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein on Instagram, not yet, and on Facebook, uh, Dr. Sue's Podcast Facebook page. I'm a longtime advocate for birth choices and a community-based practicing obstetrician. And I'm here as usual. Well, not always as usual. Sometimes neither one of us are here with my best co-host, friend, and uh, colleague, the mysterious one, Bliss.
1: Good morning,
0: everyone. Right. Best co-host in the business. We're having be <laughs> back with all of you for podcast number 189. We're going to get back to calling in podcasts again because, you know what? Even though we're in front of the fire, I don't don't know that we'll ever be back in the studio. New
1: normal, it <laughs> So,
0: is. the last podcast we did was podcast 168, and that was about Haiti. And that was back in March. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And then we did 20 fireside chats. <laughs> and now uh, we're going to go back to calling him podcasts. So uh, I'll have to come up with a, uh, like a tagline and stuff like that for the podcast. I used to like it when I used to have a tagline. I did too. I was thinking
1: about that. Five
0: so chess never really had a tagline. So I sort of missed that. Anyway, you can check us out at uh, drstuespodcast.com or on your mm-hmm. podcast app. Um, you can reach me at uh, askdrstue at gmail.com. And my website is breathinginstincts.com. And bliss is...
1: Birthing with a Y dot com, and um, you can uh, definitely email me there and schedule time uh, for consultations if you want to see if we can work together. There we go. Mm All
0: right. So. (laughs) What? Where are we today?
1: Um. Today is the anniversary of my daughter going into the hospital a year ago. Yep. Yeah, it's hard to decide what the death date is. We've we've come to that conclusion because we were in the ICU for four, five day, days. Four,
0: five days was it? Five well,
1: days. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, that's all my heart today. Thank you for those of you who remembered and reached out and you know sent your love. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I have some thinking to do about like.
0: I think she left us today, don't you?
1: don't
0: know. Well.
1: I don't
0: know. No. Well, I, I think I saw her like on the second day mm-hmm. that she was there mm-hmm. and she was gone. And... You felt that way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah. yeah. different people felt different things. <clears throat> I
0: suppose I should talk louder. Sorry. <laughs> um, I would refer everybody, everybody who listens to us should go back to... Um, I'm not sure what number it was I think it was like podcast one in
1: January I think we did it
0: yeah it was like podcast 182 or 184
1: Let's talk something about like sky. that
0: yeah mm-hmm. let's talk about sky mm-hmm. and uh, just listen to her beautiful voice
1: Yeah. and
0: it was one of the my it's one of my favorite podcasts even though it was one of the most difficult that we've ever it is the most difficult that we've ever done
1: yeah.
0: right I right.
1: appreciate that we got a chance to talk about it and play her beautiful song and so I just wanted to kind of presence that if you guys notice I'm a little less chipper than normal. I mean, I'll,
0: I'll get you going. But I, but, I, but I will tell you that what's interesting too is, you know, everybody says 2020 is a crazy year. It's an absolutely crazy year. But it really started on November 18th of 2019. Uh, uh, sure did. 2019. Yeah. Sure did. That's when it starts. So yeah. does that mean that on November 19th, 2020, it's over?
1: Yes. I declare it.
0: It's over. (laughs) 2020 (laughs) is now officially over. So we can have a really good, we're going to really have a good year from this point on.
1: Good holiday. Let's have a good holiday. Alone. Alone?
0: Yeah.
1: You mean because you can't see people? Yeah. You can come over and see us. I might. Yeah.
0: Or I might go to Joshua Tree all by myself and pitch a tent. That's not Yeah, I Yeah, I have been going home to my sister's house. I've been in California now 38 years. And I've missed one Thanksgiving in 38 years. Thank you, Beth. And um, this year we're not having Thanksgiving.
1: We are, so you can drive ten minutes down the road and share Thanksgiving without masks. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: I I, I get that, I and mean, my kids are all here, but we're not gathering for Thanksgiving. I know, anymore.
1: I get it. Right.
0: Yeah, because because there there's different classes of concern in my in my mm-hmm. like in every family. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It's a conflict for yeah, some people right, right now.
0: Yeah, I get it. You know, I'm the oldest person of my generation in my family, in my local family, and I'm the one that thinks has the least concern about the whole thing, too.
1: Yeah.
0: Am I nuts? Well, or am I practical?
1: We're all a little nuts. Okay. Yeah, I think your T-shirt is finally um, having its kaputzing.
0: It's oh yeah, it, it's uh... doctors. It's Doctor S's podcast. <laughs> The letters are coming off. That actually fits. Bummer. Um,
1: We have hi from a Russian midwife. Does that mean you're... In Russia? You're in Russia? We would love to know. That's fascinating. I'd love to hear about birth in Russia. Nice
0: that they have open internet. They have free internet in Russia. Well, well, we have censored internet in America.
1: That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, Okay, so um, it's been... I've had a fairly crazy birth run mm-hmm. so we can talk about that if you want i mean we, we talked a little bit about well, it but yeah, yeah it. I, I i brought my logbook by the way i don't know if um no doctors do this because for my first 28 years in practice i i, I have no idea how many babies i delivered <laughs> none
1: That's so interesting
0: none i have no idea how many breaches i did or how many V backs i did people always ask me like how many you did well you just you just guess yeah you sort of uh, have no clue as to how many births that you did but ever since I started my first very first home birth <laughs> uh, midwives keep a logbook and I use their I use this logbook which is the same one that most midwives use I think but now everybody probably does it online or, or mm-hmm. uh, but I don't I I do it by I do it by hand handwriting everything in pretty cool and this is what I use for my for my research papers too so I go back to this That's and awesome. then and then I know if I have to pull charts I pull charts and stuff like that but it I just thought it'd be interesting because my practice is so atypical. Oh, I should say that this past week and a half, I, I was interviewed by two different people for, who are writing books mm. on birth. One is Robbie Davis Floyd, who mm-hmm. a lot of our listeners know. I might have mentioned that last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wants me to write a chapter in a book. But another one is a guy named Seema, Sina, and he's a maternal fetal medicine specialist, but he is, like Brad Boots Taylor, probably a, a unicorn. <laughs> he believes that what a lot of what his brethren do is crazy and wrong, and he and some of his uh, MFM buddies are, are going to write a book about remembering how birth is supposed to be. So I was supposed to talk to him for twenty minutes on the internet the other night on, on Zoom, and we were on for an hour and fifteen minutes cause A lot
1: to talk about. you
0: couldn't. Yeah, I really like the guy. He's up in Park City, so that's um, at least that's where he was now when I talked to him. Cool. Anyway, we talked a lot about all the stuff that you guys have heard me talk about before, about how it got off the rails, how um, how everything that we've done in the last 50 years is really, not everything, but um, most of the things we've done have, have been detrimental to the process. And I think you may want to talk a little bit about that.
1: Midwifery-wise.
0: in a second. Mm-hmm. But I just I just thought I'd be curious. Let me look back for the, the last eight births I've done. Nope, last nine births, 10 births, 11, 12, 13. 14. Okay. So here are the last 15 bursts that I've done.
1: Okay. Starting what, when?
0: Uh, let's see. This one was uh, second week in August. Okay. Okay. Uh, Frank Breach. Uh, V-back after 2 seek C-sections, Breach, Vertex, Twins. <laughs> Which got a lot of notoriety on. Frank Breach. Frank Breach. Frank Breach. Di-di twins with cholestasis. mono twins, who ended up with a cesarean, who were labor-rested. All the other ones delivered vaginally. Um, complete breach, vacuum, uh, called by midwives for, for, all these vacuums are generally called by midwives. Di-di twins, die di twins, die-die twins, vacuum, vacuum, vacuum. Okay. See, I could go back in time and see when the last time I had a singleton head down normal, normal normal, birth. Before that was another breach, vacuum, trial of labor after three C-sections, but that she ended up getting transferred out of care. Because labor didn't
1: happen. Oh, that. there
0: she is. Juliet back in July 16th. A vertex. A vertex. A
1: vaginal primate. delivery. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so...
1: Well, I think um, some of the midwives are starting to really talk about also uh, how the pandemic and the lockdown and the stress is starting to uh, manifest itself in our deliveries. So the fact that you've been having a lot of um, vacuum deliveries, more so from midwives, um, that's interesting to think about. I've had more high blood pressure. Yeah,
0: that is interesting. I never even thought of it that way. That. That rather than transport them in, they're calling.
1: Well, and maybe just in general, it's affecting how women are laboring and oh, in their that, pregnancies. And well, that could
0: be it. Yeah, there's two possible maybe, obvious explanations, maybe right? Maybe
1: their babies are like, <laughs> mm, not quite yet. We're not quite ready to come out yet.
0: Yeah. I, I don't, don't know. I don't know that I've seen possible. more dysfunctional labor, but again, it's such a limited number. I don't have enough to make a, an assessment of that. Yeah. But... But like you're right. I, you're right. I mean, I've been called maybe, I mean, because the word is out, obviously, in L.A. that I can come and do a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And and there were a couple during that period of time that I wasn't available to, to go do. So people should know that at least in Southern California, there is that option. And um, it would be nice if it was everywhere. I am a true believer that, that there's absolutely no reason that midwives shouldn't be trained in vacuums. There's nothing... About the skill that a midwife couldn't do taxi driver
1: what does that mean
0: er physician uh, emt they should all be skilled they should all be trained
1: taxi. right <laughs> i don't know about
0: that no but... i'm kidding with the taxi driver <laughs> you, it went right over your head by that was, i hope that people listening got that joke but but i'm just saying that that first of all on rare occasions when they're when you're pushing you end up having a a D cell that's really, it's frightening and scary. And if you had to call an ambulance for that, by the time they're in the hospital and all that stuff, usually it's back, it comes back up again. You elevate the head, comes back up, but what a mess. You know, and the baby's beginning to crown. You can see this much of the baby's head and you you, can try fundal, nothing brings the baby down, but a vacuum, you can have the baby out in about a minute and a half, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A couple of minutes. So uh, I did one last night that called it was very nice because it was like seven o'clock in the evening and uh michelle odon would have had a fit because there were like 10 people there including my pal dr berlin which was there i hadn't seen elliot since he was sick
1: oh really yeah yeah
0: he says he still is he still his antibodies are still cooking he says which is great <laughs> yeah so he should probably i wonder if he's been asked to donate blood because they're i think they're doing some things like that aren't they mm-hmm uh, anyway, he looking, he's looking—he's looking great. Still can't recognize anybody. No, <laughs> yeah. tell
1: them what that means.
0: Yeah, I, if <laughs> I get the word right, he has something called protopagnosia, which is he has the inability to recognize faces, which is a, an amazing so thing.
1: Interesting. Even his kids.
0: So then it was funny because then I said to him, "Oh, well, hey, you know, I haven't seen you in a long time. You know, I've lost twenty pounds since you last saw me." He says, "Oh, I couldn't tell." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "What do you have? Stomach panagnosia too?" <laughs> Because yeah. yeah, it was very really funny. But there was a lovely group. There was a photographer there. There were a couple of midwives there. There were other. There was a doula there. There's some people I don't even wow. know who they were there. Wow. The, uh, obviously the husband was there, and and it, and it was a it was a little bit of a difficult vacuum. She'd been working really hard. That baby would not have come out after she'd been pushing for four hours, and I don't think that baby would have come out at home. They would have had to go to the hospital. So came out, and she, like the story you were telling me before we started today, she. Not a vacuum, no tears. Primate, no tears. Primate, no tears. But I did put the vacuum on one time and brought the baby down almost to the perineum, and the vacuum popped off, which is it does sometimes. So then I took some local anesthesia and I injected in the perineum just in case if I thought I would have had to cut an episiotomy. All right. And the minute I said episiotomy, in the room it was like I'm getting I'm getting the evil eye from like three or four of the different people there. Pesiotomies are not the devil, okay? They're, they're okay sometimes. And they certainly, when you use a vacuum and you've seen sometimes people that get these stellate lacerations where they, they lacerate at two o'clock and 10 o'clock and six o'clock and um, having a little episiotomy is actually much easier to repair. But she listened to what I had to say. She didn't really like the idea of the mom, but I said, well, I'm gonna try not to do it, but I just wanna be ready. And then it came out, and we were able to get it out. It was a very, very slow process. I did my little Ritgen maneuver, and then the shoulders came out bulldogging, which was part of the problem too. And the baby was really asynclitic. The vac, the vacuum.
1: Ooh, sorry, guys.
0: The vacuum mark um, was on the side of the head. Was on the side of the head.
1: Yeah, asynclitic. That's how. Right. Um, the one I talked about last week, where I called you, and then the baby came out. A baby was. Very but I tell asymptotic. you,
0: as an obstetrician. All right, and I really call myself an obstetrician. It's really satisfying for me to be able to go to someone's house and sort of be the hero.
1: Yeah, I can get that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it really—it really is satisfying. And so and when I—the reason I say I call myself an obstetrician is because this week I had someone in my practice who came in for a consult for breach, and oh no, she had twins, and and the person told her that a. She probably will get sectioned for twins, and she's only like 18 weeks. Mm-hmm. She probably gets sectioned because if either baby isn't in a head-down position, then no one does that, and no one does a breech extraction. No one does that anymore. And I, I said to the, I said to the woman, it just pops out of my mouth. I says, it's funny that that person's calling themselves an obstetrician. How can you be an obstetrician and not know how to do basic obstetrical techniques? Surgery. All you know is surgery, mm-hmm. correct?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So maybe you shouldn't be called. A, maybe you be called a surgical gynecologist mm-hmm. or a, a surgical midwife. <laughs> I don't know because what I mean the the thing that makes an obstetrician unique is being able to put on forceps or reach up and pull out a breech birth or or know how to do a breech baby and support a woman through that sort of thing. Everything else that an obstetrician does is not unique to the profession.
1: Yeah. I feel like you're looking for a different distinction amongst the umbrella title for obstetrician. And I feel that way sometimes with midwifery too.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, sometimes we're judged by people. Who... you got to turn off your uh, sound there.
1: <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. Okay. Uh,
0: sometimes we're judged by people who, who are considered our peers, but are they really? Right. Are they really my peers? Mm-hmm. Are they re- is a midwife, a CNM who's been in an administrative role for twenty years, who acts as an expert for the medical board? Really, your peer,
1: right, right, or even you know, even midwives who practice purely in the hospital,
0: or midwives who practice purely in the you know, hospital. I've gone,
1: I've transported to hospitals in Los Angeles because they had midwives there, thinking that I was going to have somebody who practiced like me. And, you know, she made the woman get on the bed. She told her she had to be on her back. She wouldn't let her use the birth stool. You know what I mean? Like didn't, didn't feel like someone who practiced in the same way yet. We're both considered or, you know, our titles are midwives. So I think that, um, I've been thinking this for a long time is like, there should be some different, you know, sometimes I don't know that most, midwives who practice this way would lovingly call themselves this but sometimes we call some midwives medwives because yeah. they're very medicalized um and actually I have a letter I'm going to read to you guys there's part of it in a little bit from um a traditional midwife who helped start um mana narm um narm um that way back she was one of the original midwives to to push that through in hoping to keep midwifery alive um, as a profession but um, yeah. some of the complications it's caused
0: and I and a, and a lot of it gets it gets back down to sort of you know it's a recurring theme on the show but we talk uh, but we talk about fear and we you know I mean it's pervasive now in in the world as it is but when but it's been in our profession, Long before it became coronavirus and all the other stuff, the fear of that—it's it, it, pervasive, and people do things out of fear that that are often irrational, and they're often they're often not necessarily well thought out, or not what we call stage two thinking. And that's why the, the the women that come to me that I see for second opinions almost always have a story of something they were told by a physician or an MFM or a family member or something like that that is that it's so absurd. It's so absurdly wrong or the timing is absurdly wrong. Like the woman at 10 weeks who had a placenta previa and was, the doctor was already talking about doing her C-section. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, The seeds of doubt, the, 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 they don't understand the things that come out of their mouth and how they're interpreted because I think they have a problem projecting themselves into the, into the position of being the client. So they say things like, You know, this little thing on ultrasound doesn't mean anything, but let's have you come back in six weeks and we'll make sure it's not there anymore. And it's like, well, if it doesn't mean anything, why are we thinking about it? What does she think about for six weeks? She's worried about her baby or, you know, or just at the very beginning of the pregnancy, you know, you're over 35 or, you know, I think everybody should be induced at 39 weeks or, you know, you come up with these things and you're throwing out these seeds of doubt. Maybe they're making the doctor feel like they're giving informed consent or they're feeling more comfortable but to me, it's almost as if they're projecting their own anxieties out there to sort of vomit them out, to get rid of them, so that they can always say, well, we talked about that, and we talked about that, and we talked about that. But do we really need to um, to bring that sort of anxiety?
1: Well, what kind of problem is it causing?
0: A lot, I yeah. think, yeah. personally. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So can I talk about a couple of my births?
0: Yeah, we should. I just want to see if I have some... Uh yeah, you go ahead. Well, I'll, I'll, you go ahead and do that because oh, look. Okay,
1: so. Um,
0: well, before you do that, Susie's got a good question. She says, we are, "We're off the rails now. How do we get back in track?"
1: Well, what is she speak, specifically talking? I about? think
0: she's talking about what I'm saying. How you know everything is. Is oh, this was 11 minutes ago. So what were we talking about 11 minutes ago? <laughs> Susie, tell us what you're what you mean when you get off the rails. Directly,
1: specifically, what you're speaking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, so. I had, um, two births this week, um, and one of them was a multip. and she, are you able to listen to me while you're doing that? I'm not
0: looking at you. I don't
1: know if you can. (laughs) So she had a lot of what you were talking about, about the doctor telling her certain things. So she had a fourth degree tear the first time, very traumatic birth experience, um, Yeah, I could go on and on about the things that happened during her delivery that she did not appreciate. Um, But her doctor said, you will never be able to have a vaginal delivery again. You're going to have to have C-sections. And she said, well, isn't there anything we can do? Like, I don't really want to have a C-section. She's like, do you want to tear like that again? And so she kind of had an instinct in her first pregnancy that this doctor wasn't a good fit for her. And then for the second pregnancy, she definitely decided she wanted to do an out-of-hospital delivery. Yeah.
0: The thing that the doctor told her about a fourth degree tear mm-hmm. is what we're taught in residency. Mm-hmm.
1: That,
0: if that it'll you have always a, happen. If you have a fourth degree tear, you should have a C-section for your next baby. That's what's taught mm-hmm. because they're obviously afraid that it'll, it'll tear again and repairing it a second time is much more difficult than repairing it the first time. But that's, I mean, that gets back to the, the way we've the the long habit of not thinking out of the box makes you consider thinking only in the box. Mm. And is that really true? No. Well, yeah, (laughs) but, but I, but I, I can tell you that that's still what's taught.
1: Yeah in and then that's then in, that's in perpetuated throughout our culture and then women believe that that's the only option.
0: Okay, so her, her second baby.
1: Yeah, so she had a beautiful water birth um a, less than a week ago and um she did have a very very short perineum and we talked about it prenatally I'd never like looked at it for her but during delivery I was like it is very 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 small like I really was not sure how it was going to turn out. And so I just helped her go really super slow and put a ton of counter pressure, even like sometimes I won't like push against it when the head is coming through, but I did on this one because I really didn't want it to tear. And she had a little tiny split and it didn't even need to be sutured. Yeah, and she's just over the moon. And so, you know, I get it like a second repair functionality-wise, you know, that's something to consider. And I think it's good to give informed consent. And then I think that it's also good to give people the trial of labor if that's what they, that's what they well, want. Well, also
0: also the, the, the thought process of the physician is that you tore once, so you're probably going to tear again. Mm-hmm. Whereas the thought process of midwives is that mul- multiples are – you know this is my word are a different species than primips mm-hmm. and how often is it that multips actually tear mm-hmm. when you know how to deliver a baby mm-hmm. okay a lot of what happens in the hospital and I've seen it when I was a resident and I watched one of the advantages of being a resident at Cedar sinai when I was when I was training was that we didn't have just like one attending you know and, and like the USC guys had Dan Michelle he was the chairman of the department And we used to joke that everything was done the Dan Michelle way. And that's how you did surgery, and that's how you did this. We were exposed to, I don't know, there are a a couple hundred different private attendings. So we would be able to learn different surgical techniques. We were able to watch people do deliveries. And there were certain doctors. um, By the way, the video went out. So if somebody would just text me and let me know that my video is still on, I would appreciate it, or send send a message. there were certain doctors who consistently got third and fourth degree tears, yeah. and there were other doctors who got none or rare. Yeah, and the difference was you watched them, and they and they didn't know anything about delivery by extension or the cardinal movements of a uh, of a vaginal delivery. Mm-hmm. But I think they, they thought that you should be delivered by explosion, as opposed to babies coming out this way with the whole you know if you have to do a Ritkin maneuver, you you can do that, but to just deliver the baby by extension. And they didn't know that. So babies would come out and they would explode every time. Mm-hmm. He was the best repairer of fourth degree tears I've ever seen. Probably, yeah. Because he, he'd done so many. All the experience. Right. right. Thank you, Angie.
1: So that was one. And then um, the other, which the reason I'm going to bring it up, because a lot of times we're like, oh, wow, the baby just came out, you know. Um, The other was very interesting because she got in the tub. She had a quick delivery. Her mom had a history of a quick delivery for her as well. She was a single, she was an only child. So we kind of knew that it could go fast. So when things were, you know, every three minutes from the beginning, we all headed over. We got her in the tub. She was having very, you know how it is when you're at a home birth, you just listen for the sounds to change. And she was at that like peak point where she was starting to grunt. And um, I had checked her, I don't know, maybe an hour before and she was seven. So we knew that she was close. Um, And she's like, I just want to have a rest. And I kind of chuckled. I was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen now. Like, you know, we're going to have a baby. And she's like can I get up and get on the toilet? And I was like, sure. And no, normally you get out of the tub, you get on the toilet, it's more intense, but she liked the toilet. So I was like, yes. I looked at Hayes, I'm like, she's not gonna like that at all. She goes in the bathroom, quiet. Go in, listen to baby, make sure everything's okay. I said, I'm right outside the door. If you need anything, you know, gloves on, the whole thing. Two plus hours, she was on the toilet, in the bathroom by herself, totally managing, slowing it down. Powerful mind, and kept everything just at bay, so she could get a little bit of rest. And then we all needed to pee. <laughs> it
0: was one, one
1: bathroom. Oh, it's my,
0: those are my nightmare. Those are the nightmare births when you go to an apartment that's only got one bath. So we
1: waited and waited yeah. and waited, thinking, you know, she's gonna have the urge to push again soon, right? No, nothing. So finally, I go in and I said. Honey, do you mind getting up and walking around? Because I really have to pee. And she's like, No, no, no problem. And so we got her in the in the bedroom laying down with her partner. But it was so funny because that's part of her birth story now. It's like the reason the baby came out is because Bliss had
0: (laughs) to pee. So what you got and then things picked up again?
1: Oh, I just said, you could have your baby at any point now, you know, like your baby probably, you probably could have been born a couple hours ago. So like, you know, and she had some fear and concerns and we walked her through that and helped her. She's the one. So she,
0: she was feeling all this pressure down there and she didn't want to push.
1: I think, I think, yeah, she, she kept telling herself that she was too tired. I'm too tired. Even though she had a really short delivery. And I said, that's really the hormones that are, like, helping you kind of be out of your body and not so coherent. And if you trust the process, you, you will have what you need. And when she and I talked about it postpartum, when I got her on the stool, because we pushed on the bed for a while, that it, you know, she was, like, talking about being tired. And so I was like, let's
0: try the stool
1: and see. And, um, and so she had a lot of energy on the stool. And as soon as the baby was out, she had tons of energy. So, yeah, it's just, it's a mental thing. It's a mental game we play on ourselves.
0: Tell me your opinion of the birth stool.
1: Um, I think it's very effective uh, for especially for first time moms or VBACs. Um, I think it can cause more bleeding, and I think it can um, cause more tearing. So I don't so use say, it unless I need so it. So you
0: say it's effective? Would you let someone push on it? But then when they're crowning, would you make them sit on the? Could you take them off the stool and you have could. them sit on the floor? You could. Because I find the same thing. I, yeah, I,
1: that's and pretty again, well known out, outside
0: minutes. of my training too. Yeah. I mean, to never use a, I mean, to ever use a birth stool. So, mm-hmm. you know, I feel a lot more comfortable if they're on all fours or they're on their back or they're even on their side than when they're on the birth stool because I can't really get under there unless you're laying on the floor and you Yeah, shaking.
1: it's like a mechanic. You feel like a mechanic.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but she was completely intact. We went really slow. Um, for,
0: for, this was her first? It's yeah. was
1: her first, first baby, start, yeah. Right. Um, she had a little skid mark on her labia, but her perineum was 100% intact. So, I love when that happens. Um, but she did bleed a little bit.
0: Yeah, why do you think they bleed more when they're uh, in her stool? I don't
1: exactly know why. If anybody, my midwife friends have a theory or have learned about exactly why that might be, she wasn't in labor long. She was healthy, healthy diet, healthy nutrition. She didn't push for a long time.
0: Read Angie's quote.
1: Yeah, she was able to turn off her progress for three hours when I wanted to enjoy it before it was over. Aww, yeah. I was ten and just wanted to soak it in. That's super sweet. I love that. You're so powerful. <laughs> you no, know,
0: there's so many so women powerful. right now that hate you, Angie. I can't. But I can't tell you. <laughs>
1: uh, I don't. I think that's amazing. no. I don't either. I think, but I think, I think that's amazing. Yeah. Get it out. I don't say that. Yeah, uh, take it out. I'm so tired.
0: Get it out. Right. Yeah. But I tell you they can do. And then, you know, this is another amazing thing. When people don't watch birth or, or they don't pay attention to it, even when you're in the birth room and they don't pay attention because the nurses are busy doing stuff or the doctor, the baby's out, the doctor's over in the corner writing the orders or whatever, is to watch the – it was her ninth baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not fair.
1: That's <laughs> you yeah, have to tell different. that part of the story um, for sure.
0: Um, to watch the transition of, of the mother – not only the father, but the, to watch, the father also, but to watch the mother. She's exhausted. She's screaming. She's uncomfortable, like yesterday with a vacuum. All right. It was really uncomfortable for her just even to put it in. I mean, she's a prime She's a tiny little person. And the vacuum is this hard plastic little cup. And it has to go in. And that's always difficult because you've got to stretch things to get it in. Once it's in, then it's it's okay for a second. But as the, as the baby's coming down, she's experiencing in a matter of, a sh- very short window. What other women might experience over an hour or two is this beginning of the stretching of her of her perineum and that burning sensation mm-hmm. that they get when that really stretches. All happening all at once, and she's can't do this. Stop screaming! You know, and she's got all he's got nine other people around her supporting her. And mm-hmm. you're almost there. Keep pushing. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And um, the heart rate had, had dropped to about eighty-two, so we wanted to get the baby out with that next push. And um, then the baby comes out, and it's it's like. Nothing ever happened.
1: <laughs> Where she, am I? She's
0: completely euphoric. She's completely, unbelievable smile on her face. By the mama. The mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the the change in demeanor is such that there's such an amnestic effect from birth that it's just great. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a miracle to watch it. It's just, I'm honored to be part of the process. You know, I, I said the thing about me feeling like a hero. Mm-hmm. I look at them and I'm jealous in a really good way. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm You know, I I know that that's not going to be happening to me ever again. (laughs) I'm not going to be ever sitting at that end of the table again. So Mm -hmm. that sort of thing is, um, I'm envious of, of, because I remember when my daughter was born. I remember how I felt about it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I
1: remember
0: when my daughter
1: was born too. Oh. On a birth stool. Yeah. 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 We'll never forget those days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you wanted to talk about IUGR?
0: No. Did you want to talk about your mana thing?
1: I'll do that towards the end. Well,
0: we are. We yeah, are. We are. Well, yeah, I can just talk about. It. I mean, okay. IUGR. I talked about it a couple a couple podcasts ago, um, and recently we just had another we had another client, and and it, the story is finished now. But she was a she's a first time mom. Her baby is very small. It's been very small on every ultrasound since the 20-week scan. It's been under the 10th percentile all along. But it's been growing all along. But it's well below the third percentile, if her dates are correct. If you moved it even another week behind, she was still below the third percentile. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But the baby's biophysical – and she was a Kaiser client. So, you know, they're worried about the baby being small, and they're calling her IUGR, even though I've already kind of explained that the definition of IUGR, in my opinion – needs to be re- de- re- redefined or re- re- rewritten. But um, they're calling her IGR, but they're only testing her once a week. All right? So if they're really concerned that she's IGR and the baby's in trouble, why are they only testing her once a week? So there's an inc- there's, an, there's a cognitive, dis- or there's a dissonant cognitions here going on because we know that the biophysical profile helps reassure you for about three to four days. Mm-hmm. That's what the data says. There's no data about it doing. And then they were doing the, the ultrasound on one visit and an NST on another visit, as opposed to doing them both at the same time. So they, they were they were calling her IUGR, they were giving her all the scare tactics about needing to be induced at 37 weeks and stuff like that, getting that baby out and stuff like that, which is probably not the best thing to do if the environment isn't hostile. And so how do you know when a baby with IUGR with, or that small is in trouble? Well, one is it's falling off its growth curve. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's at the tenth percentile, and then it's at the eighth percentile, and it's at the third percentile, and it's at the minus, you know, like the less than the first percentile. That would be more, more worrisome than a baby that's at the third percentile, third percentile, third percentile, third percentile. Right. But the label is still given them all the same. There, again, there's there should be two categories of those. People. Well,
1: there is SGA, right?
0: No, nope, the the term SGA is what I use, but I don't. But but a lot of institutions call any baby under the 10th percentile IUGR. Yeah, But well, it's wrong. It's, right. a, it's wrong. Growth restriction should be restricted to babies whose growth is falling off the growth curve, no matter where they started from. A baby that's at the 80th percentile at 20 weeks, it's at the 50th percentile at 30 weeks, it's at the 12th percentile at 36 weeks. That's more, much more of a problem than a baby that's at the third percentile all along. Not only that, the baby's biophysical profile was always 10 out of 10 normal fluid, normal fetal breathing, normal movement, normal tone, and a reactive non-stress test without T-cells, all right? But yet they're constantly going after her that this baby's in trouble, this baby's in trouble, this baby's in trouble. So she got to 39 weeks and a plus, and she decided, and then, oh, and then the baby was, I forgot about the big part of the story, the baby's breech. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, well, you're going to be sectioned anyway, you know, and then they, and then I said, well, why don't, and she came for a consult to me a couple weeks ago, and I said, well, why don't you let them try a version? And they said, they won't do a version. The baby's too small. It's like, wait a minute. That's sort of like an ideal situation is if you've got a small baby, maybe you can turn it. It's not a small baby in distress. It's just a small baby, all right? And she had a couple things going for her. She had a placenta that wasn't anterior mm-hmm. and a smaller baby and a normal fluid level, about 12, I think, was her AFI. She had a couple of things going against her, which is that she's a primep and the baby was Frank Breach and had been Frank Breach for forever since And
1: complete breach is easier. Easier. Right? It's mm-hmm.
0: easier to turn a baby who's in the somersault position than it is the baby in the diving pike position. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't do it for her. So I tried really hard and I couldn't I couldn't get the baby to turn. So anyway, she decided that she wanted to wait for labor and have a breach home birth. But we continued the testing because she had Kaiser. And it's free, and it was just easier to go. So she went to Kaiser, and I think it was was this yesterday or the day I before. I would it? never do that. Well, you know. Well, it turns out that it was good that she did because okay. she went to Kaiser for her NST part, not her biophysical profile, but her, because I had done I've been i done a home visit on her the day before. So I guess this was Monday. Today's Wednesday. I think it was Monday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty sure it was Monday. My days are blurred. I know. Anyway, so <laughs> she went in and she had an NST, and there was a four minute. D-cell down to, down to 60 to 70 beats a minute. OK. Can right back up. Reactive tracing before, reactive tracing after. But a four-minute D-cell in a woman not in labor, is not who's got a small baby, is very unlikely that that baby is going to tolerate labor. Mm-hmm. So since we don't induce breaches, now, if, she, if she'd been my client at C, at Cedars when I was still doing breaches at the hospital and she had a four-minute D-cell, I would have said, given her the option of a C-section that afternoon. Or we could try labor, try starting labor, inducing you, um, and seeing if the baby tolerates labor, which is probably what she would have chosen because she wanted a vaginal birth. Mm-hmm. That wasn't an option for her. But there wasn't an option at that point with the baby that that's small, even though the biophysical was otherwise good, of sending her home. Right. Even though I will tell you that probably if you monitored all babies with telemetry every day, all the time, you'd probably see four-minute decels happen all the time.
1: Some, yeah. maybe.
0: Yeah. I yeah. mean, maybe nothing. It, maybe
1: it's not the norm, but... But in this,
0: in this, in this baby, uh, so she ended up having a C-section, and the baby was exactly what we thought it was. At 39 weeks and a couple of days, the baby was 4 pounds, 15 ounces. So that's a bit of a pipsqueak. squeak.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Did you notice anything, or did they notice anything about the way that the cord was formed, or the placenta? Yeah, I haven't heard the
0: details. I haven't heard the details yet. We haven't. She's still in the hospital. I haven't, we'll be doing a postpartum visit mm-hmm. with her when she gets home. But uh, I haven't heard the details. Yeah. I did see a picture of the placenta, though, It looked fairly normal. But I asked um, the person who sent me the picture. I said, "Can you weigh the placenta?" Because I'm really curious as to. Yeah. Because you can't really tell from a picture how, how big it was.
1: So I wanted to just kind of compare that to midwifery perspective. Yeah. If we weren't doing ultrasounds and we were measuring babies and we didn't have the percentiles and all of that. So um, measuring the fundal height, if it's within two centimeters, we usually consider that a variation of normal. Mm-hmm. Um, if it continued... And I've seen some women, especially women with a higher BMI and stuff like that, where It'll be way off and then it'll normalize. So sometimes I give it more than one time seeing it, especially if I feel like the baby is okay. Um, If it continues to, just for due diligence, we would go in and do an ultrasound and just make sure that everything looked good. Um, You and I have done consults on something like this before where sometimes you're like, baby's fine, it's just small." And then other times where you've been like, I want to continue to see you. Um, I don't know what the difference is for you, but I've, we've done it both ways. Um, and uh, and then, like you were saying, you want to make sure that the baby continues to stay on their own curve. So if the baby's measuring a little bit small and doesn't drop off even further, then that's reassuring as well. Yeah.
0: The problem yeah. at term is that you really have to wait two and a half to three weeks between scans to, mm-hmm. to determine growth, yeah, because the error of the scan is plus or minus two two weeks or so. So, mm-hmm. so if you're worried about the baby, you can't say come back in three weeks. You have to you'll have to do some monitoring in right. between.
1: And I don't know if Beth is still on Beth Cannon, our friend who um, was definitely one of my mentors. Um, if a baby is small, she's the one who's like, "Do you like ice cream? I want you to go home and eat a lot of ice." Yeah try and fatten that baby up so I do that with my clients as well I'm like have some ice cream have a lot of healthy fat you know like yeah.
0: some babies are just born they're just genetically small but if their environment is good and then you can even do some Doppler studies on their uh, on some of the vessels in the in the mm-hmm. in their body um, and compare the two and you can get determine whether or not there's any there's ways to determine higher risk or not and if everything is normal then I mean, I understand why the medical model is, well, let's just induce you because because their their endpoint is always baby in the bassinet, right? Mm-hmm. Their endpoint isn't necessarily how the baby got in the bassinet or mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. So, neonatal death is the one endpoint that, that no one wants. And so, right. so, you know, patient satisfaction, route of delivery, not as important to, to them. But ultimately, that decision doesn't belong to to the practitioner of the hospital that belongs to the woman and her family. And so you should be giving these people options. Now, clearly everyone skews their, their counseling when there's a real problem, all right? And But it's all about trust. And what I feel like I establish with my clients, even ones I'm just meeting for the first time, because I have a reputation out in the community with the, with a the midwife who sent them in or whatever else, is that they, there's like an immediate trust. And when there isn't, you can feel it right away, and then those are the people that sort of raise a red flag. And we've talked a little bit about them, I think, in a previous podcast. The ones that you know that ask you for a discount, or or uh, you know, or, or just get upset when when you say like I might be going away, mm-hmm. and then they they like really get upset with you, and they don't say, "Well, if you're," I mean, it's not like I was going away. I'm going away to um, you know go have a party in Hawaii. I'm going away to teach and do what I do. It's part of my profession. Yeah. Right, and they're still upset about. It. So, we have a really good trusting relationship going on, and, and and therefore they they believe me if I tell them that I think you know you need to go in.
1: Mm-hmm. I like
0: got a couple people yeah. recently where I've seen them. I said, you know, jigs up.
1: Yeah, I trust your your perspective <laughs> right. on that for sure. Right. Um, okay,
0: so we just I want to get you your thing because it's important. We only have 15 minutes to go. So. I
1: do. And I also want to say right now I have a client, Sarah, and her husband, Michael, who are with Dr. Brock in the hospital because home birth is appropriate for low-risk moms. And she was unable to keep her blood pressure under control even with medication and all of the tricks that I have as a midwife. Um, so they are getting induced today and they're going to be meeting their baby, Jack. In the next couple of days, we know inductions can take longer, so I just want to shout out to them because I know that that was a big shift in their plans, and I'm really grateful that Dr. Brock is someone who really, really advocates for vaginal deliveries and doesn't, you know, we trust that he's not someone who's just going to section mm-hmm. them, so mm-hmm. I feel I've like have had like 2 the, I've had two,
0: two similar clients this week. Yeah. Who, you know, it's very, it's not the common thing for me to tell somebody that I can't Take care of you anymore because yeah. yeah but there were two this week that i that i sent to the hospital that's
1: what i'm saying right. i think maybe the all of the stress of this virus is um causing some but issues it, but it ends too. today oh yeah <laughs> like it does
0: yes stress okay. is over right
1: okay so this is a letter from a midwife her name is sister morningstar um she's a cherokee catholic midwife and she wrote this letter um, back in 2017 so it's a little bit old but I revisited it because someone was asking me about mana statistics and um, I wanted to revisit why I was hesitant about doing mana statistics um, so she says thank you for, she's talking about um, renewing her credentials and she decides to decline them her credentials was received in January 1995 and was the fifth CPM credential to be awarded?
0: In um, which state? I'm sorry.
1: Um, I don't think it says which state that she's in. The we fifth, can look that up. Fifth in.
0: CPM ever.
1: Yes, in 1995, she's part of the original team that helped um, create the NARM exam and oh. preceptor. So certified all of that. professional
0: midwives are only around since 95.
1: That's when we started to get licensure. I didn't realize that. Yeah.
0: Okay, Uh, sorry, that's interesting.
1: Um, So she says, um, I do wish to mention that it is the original content has moved me deeper into a a medical model and further from the fluid apprenticeship-based model we had so hoped to preserve. Um, By traveling around the world and immersing myself in the ways of birth from global villages in Mexico or Australia or the urban core of Moscow or Mumbai... I have learned how precious the path is that preserves a midwifery born of elders who know secrets that are passed down only to those with a hunger and a patient heart to learn. Let,
0: so, me, let me say something. Mm-hmm. Your phone rang during that and it said live video was paused. Does that mean? No, it's okay. Does that mean that people could hear what you just read?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's fine.
0: Okay. All it's right. It's
1: fine. Because um, so, that was
0: important, what you just read. Yeah. Why don't you, why don't you do, do me a favor? Read the last like two sentences again. Because it was really important, and I don't know that those people heard it.
1: By traveling around the world and immersing myself in the ways of birth from global villages in Mexico or Australia to the urban core of Moscow or Mumbai, I have learned how precious the path is that preserves a midwifery born of elders who know secrets that are passed down only to those with a hunger and a patient to learn. Many things have become endangered in my lifetime. Instinctual birth is one of them. The midwife who protects instinctual birth is another the human species itself has become endangered as nearly all babies across the globe are now born in captivity without freedom of sight or seer who controls and separates them from their mother's first gaze and touch first are the mothers who have had no blood taken from their veins hands touching their inner chambers or babies who know only a mother's arms who checks the cervix of a tiger i love that if we're talking about the mammal who takes a baby away from mother bear but for reason that seldomly distinguish life from death does an instinct injured human female suffer politely abuses to body mind and soul in the name of birth
0: that is really powerful what you just said i mean i, I that I, I always talk about when i talk about mammalian birth i say the baby comes out no one rushes in to cut the cord and no one ever separates the baby from the mother but i like it better when she used the example of the, of the tiger and the, and then the bear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You would never go in and say, excuse me, Mrs. Bear. (laughs) God.
1: (laughs) If birth is the beginning of everything else, there is little wonder that the wounded female instincts keep the sacred feminine from her rightful place in our wounded societies. Um, Having just returned from India, there's a norm in hundred percent episiotomy. This is in 2017. I don't know if it's changed. I can still hear the echo of surgeons over and over. Do you want to cut above or below? So proud is the world to learn the ways of Western professionalism. We do not have to tie women down anymore. They receive the drugs to make them polite, quiet, and compliant.
0: Yep. Not even understanding what the drugs are doing to the whole process as well. Mm-hmm. So For- what is a what is an episiotomy above mean? <laughs>
1: No, I think they're saying either a surgical oh, birth or, or we'll oh, cut you down oh, okay. Below. Wow, that one right
0: over my head. Yeah. yeah you good. want
1: it down below or up above. From antiquity, the apprenticeship way taught and preserved not only life of the body but of spirit. I have seen cords replenish themselves with a newborn's first breath when that same cord had been completely flat moments before. Yeah, I've seen that. I have seen what undisturbed birth does to protect shy oxytocin and enable rapid and upright birth. I have seen the locked gaze of a newborn mother undisturbed for hours and witnessed what it means long-term, to long-term bonding and health when I revisited decades later. I have witnessed a bite of placenta or chewing a cord control excessive blood loss faster than pharmaceuticals and with added benefits just now entering the evidence realms. She goes on and on about all these beautiful things that she's witnessed from just leaving them alone. Um, mm-hmm. so I have watched as professional midwifery care gains popularity, influence and increased, including out of hospital birth and listening to the increased criticism of that care by mothers disillusioned with transports and impersonalized high volume practices. I have sat and held the hands of my colleagues in America as they weep under the weight of standards and protocols that limit what they used to do. This is why she's not doing mana. She says, based on the combination of professionalism and the result of what used to be voluntary statistical data collection, midwifery boards create medically mirrored protocols driven by rules and regulations that glean their decisions from these professional bodies. The wise ones are faced with going back underground or abandoning a lifelong client or lying on required forms. Such unwholesome choices they face.
0: That's so true. It's like, in, you know it's algorithmic medicine we've talked to, you know like she is a way of saying it which is so in, uh, Beautiful. beautifully mm-hmm. and, and it, it creates an image in your mind but but, but yes this is this is what we, what we have talked about many times
1: but it's interesting because this is about midwifery and we usually talk about obstetrical care and out of hospital you know so um, I love this she says the pressure to follow NRP alone which is neonatal resuscitation um, The pressure to follow NRP alone has robbed the wisdom of undisturbed maternal behavior on newborn first breaths as a critical and life-saving skill. A new generation of midwives with linear thinking and action freeze in the face of the life and death cycle inherent in birth when they must think beyond their training. Schools have replaced the mentor and apprenticeship and many study for the test, as does a whole world culture who is estranged from instinct, intuition, connectedness, and patience. She goes on and on. There's a link on my Instagram page.
0: John wants to know uh, where you're reading that from.
1: Um, Can you find it
0: on your Instagram
1: page? uh, Birthing Bliss Midwifery. There's a link in my link tree. This is timetobeborn.wordpress.com. Her name is Sister Morningstar, and it was a letter that she wrote in 2017 to Narm. Um, we might've lost you guys. So anyways, this is very important to me to, to continue to bring up this conversation about, um, you know, not, not only obstetrical care, but also, you know, the professionalism of midwifery and how, um, things are lost. You know, there is something that is lost. Um, there's a lot less instinctual birth. There's a lot less of us um, really um, honoring uh, undisturbed birth and really being very respectful of any interventions that we do and only um, reserving them for life-saving moments. So that's what I wanted to bring up.
0: Uh, That is really powerful. It will be completely bored. Oh, it's
1: 2017, so. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> it has been ignored. Yeah. But I wanted to bring it up again because I reread it and I just I just it's so it so resonates how I practice or how I try to practice. I would like to learn from more um elder midwives. You know, I'm only doing the best that I can with what I've learned and my own instincts and trying to learn from women who are undisturbed and you know, what what happens, but, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to go so completely outside of the system. That oh, when
0: you're trained the way I'm trained, mm-hmm. it was really, really hard and it's ongoing to undo the idea that, that I'm supposed to do something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't like postpartum hemorrhage, all right? So, I am more aggressive than a lot of my midwife colleagues regarding once the placenta is out, just making sure the uterus is firm. You know, the idea of cutting off a piece of the placenta and telling the woman to eat it is not really in my repertoire. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, But
1: interesting to consider, right? Yeah, but when I
0: consider that, if she's bleeding really heavily, or would I give her a shot of Pitocin, or would I give her some mesoprostol, or would I give her some uh, lysteta intravenously, or would I just tell her to this placenta? I mean, it, it, you know, unfortunately, we don't live in a world where if she were to hemorrhage to a point where she got into trouble and somebody's reviewing her and you say, oh, so you, you cut up a piece of placenta and gave it to her?
1: Yeah, I'm not saying to, to right. not utilize the two. Look, all interventions... When used judiciously, are beautiful, and thank God that we have hospitals, we have IVs, we have suturing materials. You know, there are so many things that I am so grateful that we have. But if we can do something, we can learn a skill and do something less intervention, invasive. Yeah, it doesn't. You know, why not?
0: It doesn't have to be either or. Yeah, but we live in a world where the where the either or the or tends to dominate and then judge the other people and, and put put such pressure upon them that it becomes hard. And then, of course, if all everybody's going to, in order to get licensed, has to go through academic, um, you know, academic systems where things are taught a certain way, you come out, it's very hard, you know, to incorporate something like that when you're taught something so different.
1: Oh, completely. And, um, you know, I was told, specifically to go to Nijoni um, because the midwives who you know knew me really wanted me to balance out my desire to have traditional midwifery with a skill set. And I did. And I studied under you and some really amazing midwives who had had many, many years under their belt. Um, and I feel like I'm so glad that I have both. And I would let, you know, you know that I wanted to travel more um, internationally yeah. and learn. And right now, because of COVID, it's not gonna necessarily be something, but I am open to learning the traditional skills. I yeah, think just think a about just think thing about... to do. Your video has ended, it's okay. Let's
0: keep going. We have
1: two minutes here on that. On, um... Yeah,
0: just think about how different our lives may have been if we had spent four days in, or two or three days in Ecuador at that international midwifery yeah.
1: conference yeah and our and our um, what we know and how we how we practice and I think we need to keep trying to be open in our minds not get set on there's only one way to do it learning from other people um, taking skills practices from people who who know things that we don't or maybe look at things a little bit different and not get in our you know so rigid I think that's why it's nice to practice with other people and I tell new midwives all the time like the test is just some, um, you know, man-made decisions about boxes that you need to check to become a midwife. But becoming a midwife is so much more than that, and um, to be patient with the process because it's not just about taking the test that makes you a good midwife. So, anyway, that's what I—that's my soapbox for today.
0: So, well, thanks for listening. Um, we had some technical difficulties on Facebook. Bummer. You know, maybe I, I might, I might look to a different platform. I think I've said that last time mm-hmm. too. Not real we happy might do with, Zoom. I'm not real happy with Facebook uh, mm-hmm. for many reasons, but uh, this is one of them. Uh, <laughs>
1: evidence. More evidence. You,
0: again, you know that you have lots of things that you can do with your time. The fact that you gave us an hour either now or when you're listening to us in the future, uh, we're honored by that and we hope that you'll keep listening and tell friends about it and we'll look into us next time. Again, for, uh, Archive ones. It's DoctorStu'sPodcast.com or on your podcast app.
1: Yeah, we love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. Okay. Send so us questions, things you want us to talk about. Bye Have bye. a good day. Bye bye.